Hi, and welcome back to Track Changes, the podcast from Postlight, a New York City agency that builds applications and websites. My name is Paul Ford. I'm a co-founder of Postlight, and I'm joined by... Rich Ciotti. Are you also a co-founder? Comma co-founder, great, yes. Great, great. The, got the, now we've created our own LinkedIn. Rich, I just heard that I sound really angry. That's okay. okay. Channel it. That's the feedback I got. Let me try to mellow it down a little bit. Today we have a person in the studio who may or may not be angry. He's going to tell us. His name is Anil Dash. You might have heard of him from any one of 7,000 other podcasts he's appeared upon. He's also an old personal friend and someone who hired me for a while. So welcome to Straight Up Conflict of Interest. However, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to bust his chops and challenge him. Anil. Hi. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here. I was hoping to get the chance to be angry. So, um, Rich, I don't know. I'm going to tell you some things about Anil, and then I want you to tell me how you met him. He's an entrepreneur. He's an activist and advocate working to make technology in the tech industry more humane, inclusive, and ethical. He's wearing a pink sweater mm-hmm. and a, a white shirt underneath it, and I'm uh, probably blue jeans or slacks. Mm-hmm. And he's here in the studio today. Rich, how did you meet Anil? I I think I reached out to him. I think I reached out to him a bunch of times, and then he finally responded. That sounds like me. Uh, well, you know, I was a fan of, I consider Neil a, a blogging pioneer and one of the people. Am, am I allowed to say blogging we're pioneer? All, we're all laughing in the studio. It's, I mean, it's, 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 there were like seven to 12 people who were blogging before I think the word even really kind of took hold. And really well, was, was sort a, of part of that world. Do you remember when that word took over? I sure do. Sad. You, Paul Ford, yep. were one of those. Oh, seven. yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the OGs. Anil was. Uh, mm. Dave Weiner was another that I pursued, so to speak. And uh, I had this shop in New York. And I said, Anil, you know, I think it would be great to meet and just talk. I didn't really have an agenda. I just wanted yeah. to meet But you. you didn't need more than that then. I mean, I think early enough on, if it was like the your writing is interesting, the fact that, one, that somebody found you on the internet, two, thought that the, whatever crazy thing you were talking about was interesting, yeah. was sort of enough to be like, yeah, well, you should get coffee. It was really – that's how you and I met. Yeah. You know, I mean, 15 years ago now, you were yeah. like, hey, yeah. let's get coffee, essentially. Yeah. Was, yeah. I think an old roommate of mine was getting coffee with you, and I was like, you're going to meet Paul Ford? Can I pretend to have a reason to crash that? And then that was it. Cool. So we're all in each other's fan club. Yeah. That's nice. That's good. That's positive. And Neil – Every time I've heard you on many podcasts, and everybody mm. is like, "What do you actually do?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm going to tell people what you do. Uh oh. Okay. No spoilers. <laughs> so, I would I would be very excited to find out. I want to I want to I want to see if I can get it right. Okay. Okay. Ready? So Neil is a person who's best known because he has a very very large platform. He's got half a million followers on Twitter, so on and so forth. So when people see Neil, that's often like half a million people see that platform and they're like, I guess that's that guy. Mm-hmm. What does Anil actually do? Well, I've known him for many years. What he does is he does help an enormous number of media companies. He advises them. He works with them. He's on the board of places like Stack Overflow. Mm-hmm. And so he's an advisor. That's one of the things he does. He actually has a, a tremendous understanding of technology down to the roots. He started as like a Novell Netware guy in high school. Wow, that's true. Setting setting up networks for small businesses in rural Pennsylvania. It's spilling the beans here. Yeah. So, but this is somebody who goes deep on tech, still knows PHP, still can hack his way around a web page. And so he, 
he got very into blogging early days, which meant that he met every publisher, every media person, and has really good credentials. You need to get an app strategy out. You're a big organization. He's one of the people you might call. At the same time, over the last, I would say, probably five to 10 years, but really in, in particular in the last couple years, maybe because you have this platform, you've been trying to become more engaged with the world around you. You've been worried a lot about issues of access. And I, I'm, I'm imagining maybe this is because you had a kid. Mm, that was part of it, for sure. And you are trying to become more of an activist, more of an actor in the world to increase access to technology. How'd I do? That's pretty good. That's okay. pretty good. Because, you know, people talk to me about you because <laughs> you're, you've, you've got a big profile. And they're like, what the hell does he do? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, he does stuff. Like he has a, he's, a, he's a person with a job who does work. Yeah, I do real work. In it. Um, but I, I've always somewhat deliberately been um, cagey about it in my sort of social media persona for a lot of reasons. One is if you do anything nominally about making tech or the world more inclusive, you'll get – you know, harassed and attacked. And I'd like to spare my colleagues and coworkers from that to some degree. And also, it's it's really interesting to see people sort of project onto me or anybody else that's on the internet, their sort of view of what you are. Like, that's been very useful to me. I think also one of the things I've noticed over the years is that you go all the way in and you go in without irony. Like, I, it took me five years to be like, oh, I'm talking to people on Twitter these are real relationships that I'm forming. Mm. You were there pretty much on day one. I mean, I, I think, um, and again, a lot of us that were early to social media back when it was still called blogging, it didn't initially think it was that. It was like you didn't think you were going to meet people, and then you, and then Rich invites you to coffee, and then like they become real people. And I had a couple experiences really early on, which you guys would be broadly familiar with, but most folks have completely forgotten about. Uh, one was um, we made an early blogging tool called Movable Type, and until. And this would be what, 2000? The tool came out in 2001, and I was helping the co-founders that had built it, and then I started working on it uh, as my job in 2002. And we should give context to people. Blogging tools didn't exist for the first five or six years of the web. You had to just build pages by hand or use very, very expensive CMSs. Right, and so Blogger and LiveJournal came out in 99. They were the first wave of, like, usable tools for normal people. And then what Movable Type did in 2001 was, like, this is the the serious power tool, mm-hmm. and and that was just an interesting. And it also like the medium itself had become interesting. So it was a tool that would later go on be used to build Gawker and Huffington Post and all those sort of early sites. But to me, I was just sort of like building the tools, trying to figure out is there some kind of business here? And we uh, <laughs> this is such a crazy thing to talk about now, like twelve years later we decided that we would charge for some versions of the product. Like if you were trying to reach a certain <sighs> number of people or, or you had a certain number of like co-writers on your site or whatever it was. I mean, this sounds nuts now, but we basically said, well, yeah, if you have more than like five people writing on your site, we'd like you to pay like $90 for this app. Again, too, though, for people like getting money through the web was hard. There was no app store. There was no mm-hmm. nothing. It was literally mm-hmm. you're going, no. we need that $90 now. Yeah, yeah. You know what's funny about this is, and you see this a lot, and I went through it personally, actually, is that you you start something and you're like, you believe in what it does. Or what it could be. Or what it could be. You're really not checking back on a spreadsheet and thinking about the business plan. You're just, you just feel like this is transformative. This thing is going to be It needs to exist in the world. 
These exist in the world. And then what happens is like ABC calls you up and says, we'd like this tool throughout the organization. Mm -hmm. Then you have no plan. Yeah. Like yeah. large companies give you a call and they're like, this is, this is really, this is the real deal, but I need, I need a, an approval process here. Like mm -hmm. there's no way to approve what someone else. And then you pause and you say, well, that's not what we are. We are here to change the world in a grassroots sort of way. But then you pause and you're like, whoa, hold on a second. These guys are willing to pay some real dollars. And then you start backing into a plan and, yeah. you, and you have no idea what you're doing. Well, and, and there were no comparables. <laughs> I mean, the thing is like now, if you're like, we're going to charge for social media, it'd be like Facebook would have zero users if you had to pay for it. Right. So there's this sort of that, that thing. But, but what we were looking at, I remember distinctly, I was like, well, how much does uh, Macromedia Dreamweaver cost? And I was like, that's $500. And how much does Microsoft Front Page cost? And it's like, oh, well, that's $250. There's <laughs> like no research. Right. So I was like, so, well, we're way cheaper than that. Therefore, we're better. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it was not, it was not this complicated market analysis. Yeah. And then, and then we asked people, oh, well, you know, how many people do you have writing on your site? And they were like one, two, whatever. And I'm like, okay, look. If you have like five, we're going to ask you to pay. So it's like, you know, 1% of users will be affected. Yeah. How could 1% of users get mad? And what, what in retrospect is obvious is, is people care about the potential. They all thought they were going to have a site with 500 writers on it and they were going to be super popular. And so they're like, if you make me pay for that capability, then you're constraining my expressiveness or my potential. Long story short, we changed the license on a piece of software and got probably the first ever – Brand shitstorm and social media. I don't think because nobody else, by definition, all of our users were people that were bloggers, and nobody else had had a, a customer base that that was true for. It's true. I remember it was the ultimate betrayal. Yes, you and were it was, charging for software on the internet. The equivalent of um, Twitter trending topics back then was uh, blog decks, mm -hmm. and we we which was uh, Cameron Marlowe's research project at MIT around like the most popular links and topics on 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 blogs at the time. And for people who don't remember, that's B-L-O-G-D-E-X. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't even know if it, it has probably a doesn't, but page. it sounds, when you said it, it was like, almost like, like mixing decks. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. No, so yeah, it's, yeah, decks like index. And um, we were, we, we were the trending topic for like a week because there wasn't that much going on in social media. And the things like, the pattern that you actually, I think we all know really well now, of like some brand tweets some horrible thing during an awards show and everybody's like, oh, that was racist. And then everybody blows up and then they send an apology and then they, you know, make a donation and then, you know, the world spins. But the pattern wasn't sad and we weren't familiar with it yet. So we were getting death threats because we had said we might charge some users for the software and, you know, people calling us horrible names. People who, like, we thought of as, like, our online friends. Oh, yeah. You know? And it was an epiphany for me. I mean, it was miserable at the time. Like, we were all literally sitting at our desks crying. And then... It was like, oh, these are people, and they had a, had projected a relationship onto me or us or this app or whatever, and it was meaningful to them, and they had felt betrayed or in, you know, Paul, your formulation, the why wasn't I consulted, and it was at an emotional level. It wasn't like your features or your design or you redesigned your website. It was like, you're my friend, and you didn't, you didn't even think to ask me about pulling the rug out from under me. And that was what they felt. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, saw, I remember that. I remember and that. and, and it was, that was revelatory to me because it made me understand what the internet was. So what – actually, what was the internet then? What, what is that? Um, everything prior to 2003 or so of the internet was just getting set up. Mm -hmm. It was just plugging in the wires. 
And what switched, you know, Friendster is 2003 and blogs start to take off and all these different things. What, what changes then is we realized that all we had been doing prior to that was clearing our throats and getting ready to talk to each other. Right. Right. The internet was for people to communicate. Like the main thing people do on the internet today is send messages to each other. It's the most popular thing. And then the sort of second thing is you know, sharing things that other people have published. And then way, way, way down below that is writing original things. And or even finding original yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? So there's this sort of this very interesting it, – it's, it's a communications tool. And, and the way I think of like a lot of us that had computers when we were kids, like in the 80s, like I had a Commodore computer, a VIC-20, and then a Commodore 64 for years where most of what I did was not online. What would you do with a computer that wasn't online today? See, I would love it. I would love it. I just want to. I want to go like get some stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> what would you? What would you do? I but mean, like, and ultimately, you want to get back on. Like you're talking about flipping the switch off for a minute so you can write. I'm not though, because or like I, being on an airplane. What I remember was that you had to find new ways to be creative with the old machines. Like you had to. You were like, okay, I can draw with this. But the drawings were kind of really ugly. Primitive. So, yeah, so you had to figure that out. Yeah. Or you kind of write a little program or make a little music. And it was – it kind of didn't translate outside of your relationship with the computer because it was like boop, 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 boop. But for computer enthusiasts, late 80s, early 90s, the switch flips when you get a modem and you get on you know, CompuServe or the AOL or whatever – and even, well, it's the difference between like a hundred thousand people and a hundred million people. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's just this sort of communications tool. Yeah, and and so that was the thing is like, oh, the internet. Like I'd been learning HTML and I knew web pages, and I was like, I can make like you know the little whatever thing do hickey move around on the screen, but all of that was was just leading up to this becoming a communications medium, and so like that switch flipped, and realizing there were real people on the other end, which. For me, so there was that one thing with the, you know, we made a software change and a bunch of people got mad. And then and then uh, the Iraq war was around that time and I had sort of weighed in, as one might expect, on that and got targeted by a site. Somebody was like vehemently pro-war and they, you know, again, the kind of pattern that you see all the time today, but they like called my employer and harassed me on the phone at home and they published my address and they did like all these things that we see whatever Gamergate or somebody do today. But in, you know, 2003, 2004, it was shocking. It was. I remember I had a, I had a weird stalker back then and it was it, – it, you just couldn't make sense of it. Yeah. It was like these worlds never crossed. There was no such thing as IRL intersecting with online and, and in such a visceral way of like these are real people. And I mean – and these two examples I'm talking about, people being angry. But there was also like somebody sent me a spatula off my Amazon wish list, which is still the spatula I use today. Um, and so there was this, all these like this evidence of like actual humanity on the other end and all of it really quickly changed me into like none of this is a joke. None of this is casual. And we ended up um, – I remember I, – so I, I was working on movable type and I was working for uh, a woman named Mina Trot and she had been the founder and the CEO. And uh, I guess it's like 10 years ago now. She did a TED talk before TED was like the TED it is today. Like they weren't on YouTube yet and there weren't videos online or whatever. So it was like for that cabal of people that were old school type people. And she did this talk about essentially civility in the blogosphere, which is what we talk about of harassment in social media today. And it uncannily echoes uh, Monica Lewinsky's talk last year about being sort hmm. of, you know, targeted online by people and, you know, how people get harassed and abused. And 
I don't know how it was received in the room, but like in the blogosphere, it was a lead balloon. People are like, well, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean? Like strangers on the internet are going to harass you. Why are you even worried about this? Like it was utterly dismissed, utterly dismissed. And I mean, you have a young, I don't know. Uh, Mina legally would qualify as being Latina. I don't know how she personally identifies, uh, uh, but you know, you have this, this young woman in her early twenties who you know, is telling people, I built this technology and I know how people can misuse it and we need to work on fixing this. I mean, at that stage in that world, she might as well have been an, an extraterrestrial. Yeah. I mean, there's just... And you have the the most powerful people in the world at TED and they're like, this doesn't matter to us. We don't care. No, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's a young woman talking. She's talking about harassment in the blogosphere. Like, mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. are not... Culturally, we just don't understand that. No, and... We still don't. We're still having a lot of trouble with it. Right, right. It's an interesting conversation for me to have of like I'm like I'm pretty politically liberal and and generally agree with like a lot of the policy proposals from Bernie Sanders, and yet his um, adamant supporters who refuse to be called Bernie Bros, you know, sort of came after me on Twitter and it, which I don't really care about it and it wasn't like real harassment but it was annoying, and it was still explaining one one concepts to them. If I had just said to them like ten, like literally a decade ago. We're having this exact same conversation about when a bunch of people swarm on somebody and publish their private information and do these behaviors, these things, it's bad and you shouldn't do it. And it has real costs and real impacts on people's lives. And I'm in a good position where it's not going to affect me too much. But when you do this to ordinary civilians, they're going to you know, be troubled by it. And I realized like there's no – I mean and this is true broadly. Like there's not media literacy broadly. But there's no literacy and fluency about it because the tech industry refuses to learn the lesson. No, it also won't acknowledge new users. Like, there's no FAQ capacity anymore. No, 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 no. There's you no know, onboarding. Yeah, there used to be the sense, like, if you joined a community, you'd read the rules. Yeah, but, you know, the like, one of the, there's a sort of a separate goal, right, which is lower the barrier as much as possible. Get you <laughs> on Instagram in, yes. like, 0.3 seconds. Like, the U.S. Everything has to be frictionless. Exactly. Right? Frictionless. Yeah. And so friction's user... really good. It's really good. Like, having barriers up... It makes people behave better. It makes them want to do better. And, and, yeah. and you know, you see what you – if you're like, we just want to reduce all, any kind of obstacle to anybody showing up with no sense of norms or values about what this place is, you get what we have. And even right. if you, you wanted to learn the lesson – this is the thing I think about. Let's say you were a product designer at Instagram, at Facebook, at WhatsApp or whatever. And you're like, I want to make this a happy place. And you go to the best – you go to Stanford. You graduate at the top of your class in CS – you're like, I want to make sure all the products I make make the world better and everybody who uses them is happy. You're like, oh, well, is there any prior art or prior history of how building social tools affects people's lives? And I'd be like, I don't know. It's the beginning of history and nothing's ever been done for. If you want to know the his- like every single detail in every line of code of the compiler for the C language, you can see the entire history back to the original version, right? right, right. It's every- all open source, documented yeah. to day one. And if you're like, well, has anybody ever made a tool for photo sharing that people have abused to stalk each other? You're like, never heard of it. I don't know. There's no prior art. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There was a sort of social patterns community a little bit, like Christian mm-hmm. Crumlish. Sure. And Yahoo. Like, there's some stuff out there, but no, nothing that... Right. But you and I with encyclopedic recall of the most obscure corners of social one software... Or, one or two things. ...can recall one or two things from people who are not part of the conversation anymore. Right. Right. Brilliant, wonderful people who I love and respect who are not part of the conversation. And and the people who do sort of lead on this, where it's, you know, Paul Graham at Y Combinator or Mark Andreessen at Andreessen Horowitz, are willfully illiterate in it. 
Not like they can't even claim like, oh, I never heard of these old software. Like they helped fund it. Mm-hmm. Like they were around then and they've like worked to erase the lessons learned about how you treat people well in the name of like we need to onboard people faster. Well, it's a barrier to just like the hyper, 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 well, hyper growth guy. and yeah. unicorn and how do I reach a billion? I mean, if you, Instagram success is defined by the fact that they eliminated steps. Yeah, sure. There, and there I mean, were already tools where you could take a picture over here bring it over there, store it here, and then push it up there. And, and to Instagram's, their credit, Instagram's yeah. not the worst place in the world. It's generally a happy place for people. I, There's not a ton of abuse that's, for the most I mean, part. For the most part. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm by no means a Facebook expert, but I feel like they were very wary of where this could go south. And I, and I don't even think for altruistic reasons. I think they were wary of it for business reasons, frankly. Yes. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yet, this is a place that seems to somehow in very subtle ways keep its act together in terms of what can happen on there. Uh, and I think this was one of the arguments for the whole upheaval at Twitter is that they just weren't they just weren't on top of this part of the whole thing. And Facebook really was, and Facebook is at a whole other scale at the same time. I think they're thinking about it a lot more now. Y- yes and no. I mean, so, like, there is a happy intersection of Facebook's business interests with some practices that reduce the worst kinds of abuse. Mm-hmm. That's great. Right. I don't think it was intentional. I don't think they were like, we want to prevent abuse at all costs. I think they were like, if we made it possible to search a equivalent of a hashtag across all of Facebook, that'd be really hard and expensive, so we're not going to do it. And so, like, I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is just this sort of very pragmatic, you know, we limit the conversation to you and your friends because that's actually a lot easier to do. Yeah. So now – all right, we're talking about harassment online. You've received it sure. steadily. You're at an inflection point. It sounds like you are going to go hard on being a advocate for people. Yeah. What what I realized is we as geeks we won. Those of us that make software and technology um had thought tech can change the world. When do you think we won? Uh um I think we got to pin this down. That's a good question. Probably, probably 2007. Okay, it's that's probably, really, I was, I was thinking a couple of years later, 2007, what happened? Uh, it might be 2008. So um, the iPhone. Okay. Right, because the, like the science fiction moment of uh, computer in your pocket that you touch the glass and it can give you access to any information anywhere mm. in the world. Steve Jobs is a pop culture figure. And right, and, and it will not just be about like accessing database. It is the the driver of art major you know, mainstream art culture right and music and films and if you are a creator in any endeavor if you write books if you make films if you make music you make albums you still have to bend to the person who made the piece of glass with all the information in it um you know culture broadly society is basically i think fenced in by three pillars here one is technology on its own in its own sake the second is arts media culture entertainment Right. And publishing all those things like that's the sort of like the the grist for the mill. So the thing we talk about is how we express ourselves. And then there's policy and politics and governance. Right. And in the same time frame, 2007, 2008, you have technological sophistication and superiority being a primary decider of political power, who has it and how they manage it and how they collect funds and all the things that they do. Right. And even starting to have the earliest inklings of tech dominating policy decisions by routing around them, right? Like Uber starts them and they're like, our solution to regulation we find inconvenient is to ignore it. 
Sure. Or litigate it away once you get enough money right, and power. Right. Yeah. So if you control policy and you control media and you control technology, you control culture. And tech took over the other two pillars. So so this moment is arrives and you win. You're like, all right, we can shape everything. We can influence everything. What are we going to do? The first is like, we adamantly refuse to learn any lessons about social responsibility. You know, if you want to get, you've got a law degree, like you have to have uh, an ethics class when you're when you're getting your your law. It's an ethics exam, right? You right. Actually if you're if you're in, if you're in journalism school, you have an entire course on on journalistic ethics. If you are in business school, you take business ethics. Um, most CS programs have no ethics curriculum at all. If they do have one, it's probably a perfunctory oversight and has no insights to bear on like, well, what are the implications of this big data solution you're coming up with? So there's a complete abdication of like any ethical training, any civics training, any context of, of social uh, impact of the work we do at the same time as we're maximizing our ability to control society. So that's a problem, I think. Fair enough. Do you think it's just because it's early days? I mean, I don't think there's a secret plot. No, I don't think it's a secret plot. I think but... people don't like when anything gets in the way of their personal hyper growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it gets them real upset. Well, I also think we carbon copied the word engineer here to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because we didn't know what to call it. I mean, it's, a, it's essentially it's a hard skill. It's a bad analogy. It's it's a hard skill. It's a tr- we just need to a keep trade. going. It's a trade. It's a trade. So it's like, I mean, you could sit here and say these same things about carpenters maybe? No. So why, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm being a, devil's right, advocate right, but it's not in that way. It's like, it's, you know, I'm an architect or I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a HVAC guy. You, you think I should take ethics well, so training? Actually, yeah, actually. So people who design cities, people who design buildings have absolutely have ethical obligations that they teach each other about. Right? Yeah. So like, you know, here in New York, we have buildings that are trying to have a separate entrance for uh, their rent subsidized uh, tenants, which is like, here's your poor entrance, here's your rich entrance. Yeah. And people are rightfully objecting, being like, boy, if you're an architect, yeah. you probably shouldn't be part of that. So so there are absolutely architectural decisions that yeah. impact society. The ethics are, they, are baked in. I've known, like my wife works in construction, and I mean the ethics are baked into the conversation yeah. she has. There's a lot of unethical right. stuff in construction any moment. Yes. Yeah. But, but you can shift it. I mean I was you know working broadly in the construction industry when the ADA passed. And – you know, a hue and a cry, and oh, we got to put a ramp on everything, and it's terrible. And it's like, you know, we wouldn't have the rolling luggage industry if the ADA hadn't put ramps everywhere. Like, there's all these great benefits. Like, our strollers got bigger and heavier for our kids, and now we have SUVs we push around. Like, that stuff all happened because ADA, like, genuinely made things far more accessible for more people. And the construction industry was, like, not saying we're going to actively break the regulations – they're like, look, there's an inspector. They might come and see if we don't build the ramp. We got to build the ramp, and it wasn't more complicated than that. Meanwhile, you know, if you're like, well, we want to see, we want to inspect whether Uber is complying with taxi laws. They're like, of course we're not. What's the goal here for you? What Disruption. You... <clears throat> I mean, yeah. yeah. What do you want to do? What do you I want, want to? I want to re-rupt. Re-rupt. <laughs> re-ruption. Yeah, re-ruption. The Neil Dash come a re-ruptor. <laughs> <laughs> that's boy. That's a branding triumph. Now, I think it's very simple. I, I think we need to understand that choices we make in technology, features in our software and our hardware and our devices, directly affect society. What's what? Like what feature? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of examples. I, I, one of the ones I, I really have kind of gotten obsessed with because of the tech industry's really weird relationship with labor is um, Postmates, which is like a push a button and make humans do things for you app. Yeah. Uh, had a a delivery service where they would sort of bring you, you know, I think food and stuff. And um, anything, 
Yeah, but I think this was particularly in the food feature that they're going to talk about. Yeah. And they would they had a tip uh, menu where you could choose how much you're going to tip the poster. I don't whatever the person is. They have some, the post mater. The, your mate. Ew. Yeah, I don't know. So tip your know. mate. Right. They have some. Tip uh, I, I don't know how they brand their humans, but they they have a uh, you know the person that was going to do this yep. task for you, and uh, they changed the default on the tip uh, to essentially be zero. It had been twenty percent. They made it zero. Mm-hmm. And the average uh, person who was working these tasks lost 30% of their income when that one menu screen changed. I would assume most of the people who made that app and were responsible for making those decisions probably went to uh, very good schools, had computers at home, went to top you know, universities, probably went to Stanford. We don't even have to assume that though, do we? I mean, let's just. We can check and find. People made this decision, right? Right. But what I'm saying is, and they had never had an experience with a job that relies on tips. Whoever the cohort who made that did not feel a need to protect that. That's right. That's right. Well, I want to. I want to point out how they got there because I don't. I don't think it was malice. I don't think they were like, I don't care about these workers. I think they literally don't understand the condition of working for, you know, scale plus tips. It could well be that the engagement numbers weren't very good. Sure. It could have been metrics like, Whoa, what Yeah, the this is a point hell? of friction. Oh, if you have to choose a tip amount, there's a tyranny of choice and it's going to slow down the transaction. Well, not take a, it well it's not even just that. It's 21 bucks and now it's 25 and people just aren't getting the interface that I have the option to dial it back down to zero. And they're saying, well, this is a hell of a fee you're charging me here. And, you know, Postmates is a startup. They've probably mm-hmm. raised a couple million bucks and they're probably. trying to survive and... I, and I, and I, this this is sounding You're giving like, me a view into the into the beast. Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to frame this because I don't think it was you know to hell with the delivery. No, guys. I don't I think, think it was, malice it was at all. like the numbers aren't great. We got that meeting next month with the board. Where we can, this we, how do we, can we cut? Them up? What Where can, can we, we change? What, what, how do we get? You know, Seamless made a big change with tips, by the way, recently. And if I'm not mistaken, it went from a freeform field to. Percentage, yeah, fifteen, uh, percentages and and their 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 selections, mm. right? And it's more work to put in a custom tip than to select to select. And the default select, if I'm not mistaken, is a lot higher now. Yeah, than it New used. York City taxis did the same thing. Yeah, like they have a thirty percent option, and I'm like, I love oh taxi God. drivers, and I'm yeah. Indian, and I'm not giving you thirty percent. Oh my! I mean, eight dollars. <laughs> I used to. I mean, used to be. I mean, used to pay with cash. Yeah, right? taxis. New York taxis. Pay you just cash. round up. It's eight dollars. You gave him a dollar. Yeah. Even to, even to, you gave him a ten. You asked for a dollar back. I mean, that was wow. You're a monster. No, no. I mean, I mean, this I is how we thought. I mean, I've never thought anybody less we than never $2 processed. What the hell? Who are you? We yeah, never what? processed you percentages. The, you give him the ten. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at here is it's a dollar sixty. I, it's nine. You're just trying to gloss right. over the fact you gave a dollar tip. Why don't you ask him for forty cents back? <laughs> I guess what I'm getting at here is that yeah, defaults. I mean, this is to your point, mm. but on the other side of this is your ADA ex- example is an interesting one because it's an independent third party that is advocating for a particular position that just can't even get in the room. Mm-hmm. They either needed laws. Or they needed press, or they needed something that was going to really force a hand. Good here. regulation. That's what. Good they got. regulation. That's right. So ultimately, these are, I mean, young businesses that are probably going to fail. Yeah. The great majority of them will. They're in the fail. process of fail. They're in the process of fail, and they are. They don't. They are just. They're scrap. I mean, it could well be, probably unlikely, that they just thought, 
a u- user experience person further down the line made this change sure. and nobody really But what they're doing is they're externalizing their risk, right? Because what, what you do in these cases is those people who can't survive on their tips are going to be supported by a, a safety net that's paid for by the rest of us, not by their VCs. You're right. Right? Yeah, and, you're, you're bringing up a great point here, but, you know, I, I'm going to go four degrees over and argue that Postmates needs to be careful because the army that they're sending out there to make Postmates successful will turn on them. Yes. Yeah. So this is – If they're me, empowered to. If they're empowered – well – there are going to be other apps. I think there are like 50 of these delivery Probably. apps. And I think what they have to be – and I think that is the better case you're going to make to Postmates, frankly. They're going to choose another app? No. I think when, you, when you're in that room and you get to be in front of that board, I think telling them that you, know, you never worked for tips and you don't understand what they're struggling with here uh, is not going to fly. I think what it will fly is, listen, you better be real careful because that army that you need to be successful will flee. Well, those are the same thing. Those are parts of the same argument. I mean, for me... Well, who are you going to try to convince New World? Are you going to try to convince capitalists or are you going to yeah, try to... There's, there's an interesting thing here because I, I think the, the crux of what you're saying is, well, if you make the economic argument, they're going to be more persuaded by that. It may not... Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and I'm, one of the choices I'm trying to make more frequently these days is to deliberately not frame ethical choices based on the economic argument. Now, so like, for example, like, you know, diversity and inclusion in tech, I think we make more money and are more profitable in companies where we're more inclusive and we have more, you know, a broader range of people working for us. The data are there. The evidence is there. That's fact. Nevertheless, I don't ever want to make the case for diversity and inclusion in tech based on the fact that it'll make the people who are against inclusion richer. That is not interesting to me. That is not right. the framing. Like, I'm not willing to concede the ethical and moral uh, you know, underpinnings of the argument. And so the same is true for these workers. It's like screwing them out of their tips because it makes your user interface simpler is wrong. It's also bad for business, but I don't care about your business. I care about you doing something wrong to people that don't deserve something wrong. Would, would you agree that that's not going to fly Maybe. to a company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, especially like if we can give tools to the workers to organize with each other where they can like pass the word, like right. Postmates is going to screw Maybe you. Maybe you are, you are organizing that ADA. Maybe you are creating that third, third party organization that is going to essentially that you get, provide either guidelines, I mean, at the most extreme laws that they yeah. have to stick well, to. Well, I think anything short of laws they haven't responded to. And even in the case of a yeah. lot of these companies, the laws they didn't respond to either. Right. Right. So what is, what is a day then? Like, I, oh, I know what question. you do. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm the only person in America who actually knows what you do. <laughs> but what are you going to do now? The goal is that the folks who are building, whether it's the founders of a startup that are building something cool and creative or the, you know, the industry leaders who have the money and are writing the checks, to independently be thinking, boy, did we anticipate how this impacts the most vulnerable people, the most marginalized people? Because either now we've been reminded enough times that we know that's what we should do, or boy, are we going to get the shit kicked out of us on the internet if we don't. And either way, carriage or stick, I'm okay. As long as they are thinking, you know what, there is no way we're going to be able to get this thing out there in the market and, and fulfill the potential of our technology to change the world without us thinking about the people who have the least and have the least access and whom we typically haven't served in the past. Okay. So how are you going to do that on a Thursday? What are you going to do? I'm very fortunate now with the size of my network and the people I'm connected to, I get a lot of inbound. A lot of people saying, boy, here's a thing. You got to go fight with this person. And so people call things to my attention that they want to get amplified and they want help on. And 
90% of the time, I say, here's the person who runs it. I'm going to introduce you and connect you. And I think they want to do the right thing and let's help them. And if you need resources, I'll help you get them. 10% of the time, somebody stonewalls. And then we bang the drum. That's pretty fun too. Somebody wants to help you. Oh, gosh. What do they do? Um, Don't help me. I'm fine. Look at the apps and the tools and the tech you use every day. And you'll instinctively know if you think about it for 30 seconds, boy, they're screwing up in this one way. You know, it's going to be, well, this doesn't work with a screen reader and blind people can't use it. Or, uh, gosh, if this takes off all over the world, it would completely undermine the entire worker economy. Or, you know, um, uh, this is spelled wrong. Like whatever it is that you can find this sort of fundamental flaws in the tools and technologies we use every day, take a look at it and tell them, hold them accountable. First, go to the company. And if they don't fix it, then go to the world and just take seriously that the things we used to think of as bugs, as flaws in our software, are increasingly becoming uh, really significant weaknesses in culture and amplifying the worst uh, problems and flaws in society. And if we can see that those things are connected and hold people accountable appropriately, then we are all helping do the work we should be doing. All right. Come back soon and tell us how this is going. I will. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Anil. That was Anil Dash talking about his new life as an advocate for social change by critiquing technology. Anil is many things. You can find him at dashes.com and you can also see him at at sign Anil Dash on Twitter, where you'll be one of about a half million people keeping an eye on him. Anil, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. Rate us on iTunes and let us know if you need anything. Just send us an email, contact at postlight.com. Check us out on postlight.com, our website, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.